Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with second generation Italian Kiwi Bree Di Martina, who's grown a food forest using permaculture principles in her garden in New Zealand. And I spoke to other Italians that had come from Stromboli to try and get hold of some of the seeds that their grandparents had brought with them. And about two, three months later, a little envelope arrived at my mailbox with absolutely nothing in it, just this hand scrawly um, script writing on the front and just the seeds loose in the envelope inside. Her book Nostrana, meaning homegrown, is also a parallel story of Italian food heritage in New Zealand. It's about the legacy of her grandparents growing a new world for themselves and their fellow Italians during the economic migration of the early 1900s. As Brie celebrates Nostrana's publication in the UK, she told me how her Instagram page was never meant for the bookshelves. A book was never on the horizon for me. It's not something that I'd thought about and planned about. So I had no scheme in my head. Um, I have um, an Instagram channel and I had gotten a little bit tired of sort of influence the world and chasing likes and frenemies online and all of that sort of thing. And I started this little account called I Ate My Garden and I really wanted, none of my friends knew about it, no one knew about it and I I really wanted to just focus on taking nice pictures and writing and it wasn't for anyone. The the book actually came about from that Instagram account because the commissioning editor, Holly, had been stalking that account for quite some time. And when lockdown for COVID came to New Zealand, I um, was bumped straight out of my job along with a lot of other people. And about three or four weeks later, Holly, the commissioning editor for... Um, the publishing company approached me about writing a book based on the garden. And then as she asked me more questions, she found out about the Italian heritage and the types of things that I grew. Um, And the things that I grew were literally um, because they were difficult to get hold of, but they're foods that I love but have nostalgic attachment to. It's about connection, isn't it? That is what commissioning editors and, you know, a a readership really wants. It's much more than how to plant an asparagus. It's why asparagus is important in your life. And then you take the asparagus and you go right back into into the backstory. So when you came to pitch it, were you kind of helped with that pitch? I I didn't actually really pitch it. I mean, Holly had asked me... Um, if I was interested, and I said yes, and she said, well, what would it look like? A garden-to-table kind of thing. And so I did a few mock chapters for her to talk to uh, whoever she talks to, and that's how it started. So it was a garden-to-table, but then she wanted more of the Italian to unfold in it because that's where uh, my nonna's recipes and a lot of the recipes and the pantry staples that I have uh, tend to, you know, come through in my cooking because that's my, you know, favourite well, food. good old Holly. Good I old mean, Holly. You know, that is great. Yeah, that, that's she... <laughs> very unusual. I mean, normally the writers have to really find the pitch. and uh, But it is very straightforward. And the book is exactly that, isn't it? It is your garden. And it is your and your heritage 
and your nostalgia that is coming through in the recipes. And so we learn very clearly how to plant our garden, how to eat the food from our garden and how to cook it. All laced yes. through with these lovely stories of your nonna. And, and <laughs> actually, what's really interesting, what I'd like to start, is actually the, the influence of the Italians in New Zealand. So let's go right back to the 1900s, to when your grandparents moved here. The, you don't say that they were economic migrants, but I presume, like most of the Italians d- d- moving all over the world, it was t- driven by poverty. I mean, it, Italy was a very poor oh, country yeah. at that time. So actually, the food that they brought with them, it was to do with nostalgia of obviously to make themselves feel at home, but it was food from the land. Yes, and and economic driven as well. Uh, I think my my grandfather came from Stromboli when he was twelve years old. So he came out here on a ship on his own uh, to meet other Italians that had arrived before him, and then his two brothers followed. And you know, twelve years old at the time. Um, and it was interesting because Holly um, asked me so, for some photos of my family back in Stromboli. And I was like, actually, I don't think you understand. No one would have owned a camera in my family, let alone the whole island, uh, to have that sort of history. And um, quite a few of them brought things with them like um, fig cuttings and uh, tomato seeds and things like that. And that's actually where the story sort of overlaps because when I was growing the garden, I contacted a few um, of the uh, other Italians that had come from Stromboli to try and get hold of some of the seeds that their grandparents had brought with them and spoke to this really great Italian guy in Wellington and he he talked to me that they were cross-pollinated and, you know, wasn't so sure. And I wasn't sure that I'd actually convinced him. But about two, three months later, a little envelope arrived in my mailbox with absolutely nothing in it, just this hand scrawly um, script writing on the front and just the seeds loose in the envelope inside. And I had wanted them so that I could make my great-grandmother's tomato sauce with the tomatoes that she would have grown. And so I had turned her recipe book into this little journey. And and that's your first food moment, actually, you know, the tomato sauce from your nonna's recipe book, which which we'll talk about in a minute. Tell tell us about what, what, why you really felt that this was such an important part of the, the book for you, this particular recipe. Oh, that recipe is intrinsic because it's something that I grew up with and my grandparents made it and it was in the beer bottles with little gold caps. It was in the in the crates that you would buy, the old-fashioned way that you used to buy beer in those big sort of old brown bottles. They were cleaned and then reused with the tomato, filled with tomato sauce. And we really didn't have Heinz or Wattie's tomato sauce growing up. Um, it wasn't something that I tried until much, much later in life. Um, and it's something that I continued to make because I was so attached to that flavour and that smell and, I guess, the memories. Well, it is about identity. I mean, I made a mm. film once years ago, um, back in the 90s, early 90s, about the Mediterranean diet, and there was a fantastic mm-hmm. scene in it where I was interviewing a whole load of nonnas who couldn't speak a word of English, <laughs> and I don't speak Italian. And it was all about who made the best of our oh, sauce. They, they, they will die on a hill. <laughs> 
was great. Absolutely. Because um, there are two sort of parallel stories here, aren't there? There's the growing and then there's the, the recipes from your mother and your grandmother. Your grandparents were part of a group of, of Italians who helped other people to settle yes and it was a, a really interesting community and i love the fact that the food plays a part in that i i wrote a book years ago in 1998 about how uh, about australian settlers um and it wasn't just italian it was the greeks and the vietnamese as well and uh, but even in the immigration camps they were growing their own tomatoes to, to create mm-hmm. the smell of home, it is incredibly important to be able to smell the food from home. Give us just a little picture of that community growing in the early 1900s of the Italians and what you know of the, the recipes being passed around and that early, that early growing of Italian food in New Zealand. Well, uh, a lot of the Italians that came to New Zealand settled in Island Bay and then... I think my grandmother had some health issues and they moved to Nelson where there was also a small community of Italians uh, and it was a little uh, suburb called The Wood which was became the very immigrant community and it was perfect for growing tomatoes uh, and so that's what they grew and a lot of them grew um, had large greenhouses and grew tomatoes and my grandfather had this really large I think it was a quarter acre section at the time and it was it was pretty much all in vegetable garden. There was a little flower garden around the around the Hills Hoist clothesline and that was about it. But there are really strong memories of the coffee beans being roasted in the garden shed and that really bothered the neighbours because it's quite a strong smell and it was a very tea-drinking society back then. It's not now. We're very fond of our coffee now in New Zealand, extremely fond of coffee in New Zealand. But back then, not so much. So that was Joe roasting his beans again. Um, And that little shed has some really strong memories. Um, It had shelves and shelves of preserves, um, wooden shelves with all the preserves from summer and all of the things from the garden. Um, And it was a really tight community. I think um, I've had people contact me that remember my grandparents and remember having food at their house and meals at their house. And my grandmother in particular always baked Whoever was coming to stay or coming to visit, she always baked their favourite thing. And when I went to stay with her, she would bake my favourite thing and it would be in the cookie tin. But she would also bake my friends' favourite things. So when they came to visit, there was like there was these choices in the baking tins of everybody's favourite thing. Um, so it's quite heartwarming when people have... Um, you know, found me on Instagram or Facebook and told me these stories that they remember. And it all relates to food. It's so um, fascinating that they, it's tied to a lot of these um, meals that they had. You, you mentioned your grandmother's recipe. Book. Yes. <laughs> um, that's an extraordinary thing for, um, for a woman to be able to write a, a book at that time when she's setting up a, a home for it to have some kind of legacy uh, still. Tell us about that. What do you know about that? 
Well, I don't think she intended it to have some legacy as such. I mean, there weren't a lot of cookbooks around at the time, and the little and the book is is beautifully handwritten in English most of the time. And up in the lo- in the top right hand corner of every recipe is the name of the person she got the recipe from, or where she got it from. So there's moles. Um, cookies and there's Eileen's and then there'll be her mother's and the tomato sauce is her mother's so it's and it's absolutely stuffed full of clippings and recipes that she's written on notepads obviously when she's been at somebody else's house for afternoon tea and wanted a recipe it's been written out and put into this book and I um you know, obviously have this book now and I have been making the recipes for quite some time but there, a lot of them are written sort of in gallons and pounds and ounces um, and a lot of the recipes you have to have seen being made because it's just a list of ingredients. The ricotta recipe is one that I've made for years and years because in New Zealand you, for a long time you couldn't get fresh ricotta. You could buy it but it was nothing like what it should be so I would make this ricotta and one year I made it and I decided to enter it into the New Zealand Cheese Awards and it immediately won champion cheese. And wow. that's it's, and it is so easy. I mean, tell us how I you know. make your ricotta. I couldn't believe how easy it, it is. It is so easy. I, I mean, the way I make my ricotta is probably not the way Italians originally made it um, because ricotta is twice cooked and that's you would make the cheese and then with the leftover whey you would add a vinegar and get sort of another sort of fresh cheese out of it to use to make pasta or cook with. Um, And that's where ricotta started. But to get that really full creamy ricotta, you would make it without having made the cheese first, just from milk and cream. And you get this lovely light, fluffy um, ricotta that's sort of, it's almost like little clouds or really really light fluffy scrambled eggs kind of texture in your mouth and when you make ravioli with that it's it's just heaven Um, amazing and (laughs) your second food moment is the pizza dolce Oh, the pizza dolce. That's nonas. Um, and that, that I hummed and hard whether that recipe went in the book for quite a long time. And then I thought, well, no, uh, food's about generosity and sharing. But it was a recipe that she didn't share. She, Whenever somebody wanted the recipe, she would make them the cake. And um, so, so many of my friends and family um, have, you know, garnered this recipe now and been off trying to make it or not trying to make it I mean it's 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 actually quite a straightforward recipe but it's lemon and chocolate custard um in a in a casing basically so if you're a custard square fan it's like the elite Italian version of that (laughs) perfect with a little espresso in the morning it's yes yes that's how I do it (laughs) But but one of the one of the problems with that is that you have to have secured your piece for the morning when the cake is served because there's never any left, uh, and then there's lots of others in our family that do the same thing. So there's these squirrelled away slivers of uh, pizza dolce. Um, but in it the comes fridge. from Napoli, and your your nana yes. will tell you all the stories of, of her childhood. 
this is where it's actually quite difficult because both of them died when I was quite young. So Papa, um, you know, that's Giuseppe and everyone called him Joe, but he died when I was probably about eight or nine years old. And my grandmother, not long after, maybe 11 or 12. So I really didn't get a lot of the stories because a lot of that history in New Zealand was quite fraught. Uh, a lot of Italians arrived before the war and they weren't entirely welcome here. Um, well, a, more than that, I mean, you say that they had to actually go to another island. Yes. There was a real fierceness uh, from the local population towards the, these recent immigrants. Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of the, even even though a lot of the Italians had been in New Zealand, like my grandfather had been in New Zealand since 1922, so a really long time. Yeah. And a lot of them were what you call naturalised, which means they were citizens. Uh, yeah. But they were still rounded up and put on this tiny little island with a lot of um, Germans and they were they were left there in this tiny island called Zones Island just off um, Wellington Harbour. Uh, not a big island. You could probably kayak around it in less than an hour. Um, and that was in that time that was taking away the breadwinner of the family so a lot of the families had to sort of really band together and look after each other uh, so there is quite a strong community because of that um, because of that time in New Zealand and it's really not a lot of history it's, it's not a, a piece of history that even New Zealanders know about but we were Immigrants in the way it was said in a bad way, you know, mm. immigrants mm. that... Um, and, and actually, you know, that's one of the things that I really like about this book because it is about putting the seeds in the ground and it is those seeds that you talk about that have come from Italy. That So they are literally, you are grounding those people and those memories on behalf of the people who couldn't do it themselves. Mm. Your third food moment is a strawberry oat slice. Um, this is about your mother's cafe in Wellington. Yes. Um, yes. It's a massive food heritage. It's, it's, it's as well as the seeds growing through the, the, the ground in your Nostrana, in your own homegrown garden. There's this, this, these, these mothers, these grandmothers who are mm. creating this food for their new world. Um, tell us about Eliza's. Oh, I, I absolutely grew up with food as a, as front and centre. Um, Eliza's was a cafe that my mother had in the 80s, uh, and it was just down the side road of a, a really, you know, um, centre point department store in Wellington, and it had all of the, you know, had all of the old-fashioned beautiful um Treats, you know, club sandwiches and asparagus rolls, and had a really amazing chocolate cake, which didn't make the book. <laughs> but the um, the spiced apple cake and the oaty slice, um, amongst other things, and the oaty slice was something that used to appear in our lunch boxes because I was obviously at school, and the leftovers from the cafe would often appear, and I say leftovers in a really broad sense of term, we were getting beautiful cafe food in our lunch boxes um, at school because my mother would have done the baking and all of those nice sort of chewy end cut pieces that might not have been perfect, that was, um, that was lunchbox. The strawberries 
you grow. Um, and yes, for me, the book really is about growing. It's it, it, it does is. have some fantastic recipes, <laughs> and we barely even talked about that when we're at the end of the show. Tell us about your permaculture philosophy of um, growing. Oh, my my philosophy of growing, I mean, it's obviously developed over the years and it was quite a long time before I actually realised I was a gardener and that I was growing quite as much as I was. It just slowly crept up and crept up and there would be more and more plants. Um, Strawberries is one that I've identified in the book because it's just so easy. Uh, really your only issue is to beat the birds when the when the strawberries ripen and I'm not a huge preserver I've I used to be because of my grandmother but um, it's quite labor intensive over summer which is when you want to be outside and doing things so I've changed my garden around a little bit so that it's grazing all year and tried to find plants that produce at different times and I have a completely spray-free garden. Uh, so that also um, took a little bit of time uh, to even out because I would get little infestations of bugs and it was a little while before their predators turned up. Um, and now everything is really in balance that I don't have a lot of um, big issues. Um, I've got all the right birds in my garden and all of that sort of thing. But, and um, it's a wonderful yeah, sort of well, circular approach, isn't it, in that you talk yes. about plant sharing. Um, I do a lot of this as well with a friend. Um, you know, rather than buying seeds, it's is to actually share your plants. Um, you know, a rhubarb, for example. Tell us about sharing your rhubarb. Oh, rhubarb's one of my fav- another one of my favourite plants to grow. Um, rhubarb is um, a perennial that will just keep coming back for years and years and years and years. And every so often you have to dig it up and split it up. And when you split it up, you sort of divide the root quite harshly just by driving a spade through it and um, you can you know that's when I share the plants with friends and the the whole ethos and something and sharing something locally with a friend the plant is already adjusted to the conditions so it makes it um, a lot easier uh, for someone else to grow give me one of your rhubarb recipes Oh, I've got a f- I've got a few rhubarb recipes, but I have to say that the the hands down favourite in my house is 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 the rhubarb and custard pots that I make. It's such a simple thing. The 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 majority of my rhubarb becomes stewed rhubarb, and then I use it from there. So I have a muffin ricotta and rhubarb muffin that I'll make, but also the stewed rhubarb will be with yogurt for breakfast or with custard for dessert. And I'll make up these little. I get all of the glasses out and I put uh, rhubarb and custard, and then I wrap them and put them in the fridge. And people just take them out as or family just take them out as snacks when they're hungry. Um, but that's probably um, one of my favorite um i guess winter fruits uh because it's so accessible but it's also such an easy plant to grow the bugs don't bother it um and it it's it just comes up every year which is one of my favorite ways to grow it does make for a messy garden when you're doing the eco system because you do have to let the plants go to seed. So not deheading them, you do have to let the seeds fully develop. So that's Which where is what I've, should happen naturally. It's it is what happens naturally. Uh, but we've become accustomed to tidying our gardens and I'm always putting a caveat when when people say I really want to see your garden and I 
have this picture that they think this is going to be this perfectly manicured garden, and it's not. It's far more uh, wildflower, you know. Um, Which is what the bees want. It is. That all of the insects and bugs. I mean, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, what do you think about gardens and climate change? Oh, it. Absolutely. And the thing is, this, the plants that do well in your garden and you save the seeds from those plants that do well in your garden. And then every time the climate adjusts, your plants adjust, you choose the best adjusted plant and you save the seeds from that. So you are kind of keeping up with the changes. So um, I have tomatoes that, that fruit early and tomatoes that fruit late. And I keep those sort of variances so that I have a more constant supply. But the best performing tomato plant will have one of those tomatoes kept for seed. And I let it grow and grow and grow and ripen fully on the plant. And then I keep the seeds. And that those seeds then have in their, I guess you call it their DNA, um, they're adjusted already to my conditions, so it's a it's a perfect perfect way to um, um, hedge a little bit, I guess, against climate change. I mean, obviously, you, you know, the rate we're going, you're not going to be able to completely outpace it unless we change. But everybody that makes just a little step brings it, you know, that much closer. The book is out in England. It's we're we're talking at your seven o'clock, my eight o'clock in the morning, and it's dark. I can see out of your window that it's dark in New Zealand. You go through the seasons in the book, um, but actually, yes. you know, going through there wasn't anything that I thought. Well, I can't grow that. That feels too the southern hemisphere. What can we learn from your book about resilience skills? One of my favourite pieces of advice in the book is to start small, is not go and buy a whole garden centre full of vegetables, just buy one or two, preferably things that you like to eat because a glut of something you don't like to eat just becomes a real burden. And um, choose things that are easy to grow or perennial or self-seed really well and you'll get a lot more success. And then add to it one by one, the way you would with a recipe in the kitchen. That's how I try and advise people to approach their gardening. Don't go and buy every plant in the garden centre. Choose one or two. Choose rhubarb and a lemon tree and see how you go. And then add to it a few weeks later. So, you, I mean, in the kitchen, you wouldn't be making souffles and risottos all in one day if you've never made them before. You would choose one, learn a little bit about it, master it, and then start another one. And that's how I recommend approaching a garden. And you're going to have successes and failures. Uh, but the successes are really great and you'll find the food tastes better. The produce from your own garden tastes so much better. And I stopped saying this because I started to sound like, you know, I was possessed. Um, because, but I would then have friends who had grown their first tomato and they were coming, you don't understand, it tastes so much better. I was like, I know, it's that's the beauty of it. And then what you cook tastes so much better. So you use a lot less other ingredients because you actually are enjoying the, the, the flavour of that taste. Just like the Italians have always done. Yeah, I think Italians have always known that homegrown, simple ingredients um, make for the best recipes. And simple, simple food, homegrown, is extraordinary in taste. 
Thanks for listening. And do check out my Substack for much more on the permaculture of Brie in Extra Bites. I'll see you next week.